We have much to lift uh, before the Father. If you would, please join me in prayer. Lord, we come humbly before you based upon what we have already seen in the service is the precious blood of Jesus Christ that has covered us, and he is our righteousness. And because of that, Lord, we can draw near to you, particularly in our time of need. And Lord, we do have many friends, many uh, family members, Lord, who are undergoing some particular difficulties, and Lord, we want to be mindful to lift them up. Lord, we want to pray for our sister Drake, um, who has had to be readmitted into the hospital uh, this morning. Pray, Lord, that you would uh, bring relief to her body after uh, giving birth uh, to her baby. We also, Lord, want to uh, pray for our dear sister Melissa as she recovers from surgery this past week. Pray, Lord, you would bring healing to her. Lord, we received the news this morning that our dear friend, uh, David Roy, uh, was in a tragic uh, motorcycle accident hit by a drunk driver and was had to be airlifted to Vanderbilt. And Lord, we just pray that um, as you are working right now, even to help his body recover from that, that Lord, you'd be with, with he and Jana and, and that Lord, you would bring um, healing and love and let them know that we love them dearly uh, during this time. We pray, Lord, for a quick recovery. We, we understand that he is doing okay at the moment, but that, Lord, uh, he still has a ways to go. Lord, we also pray for those who have lost loved ones. We think of our dear friend Gene and his family. We pray, Lord, that you would comfort them. Pray for a sister, Lord, who sent an email to me to let me know that she lost her father, uh, Vicki Dean, Lord. We pray for her, that you would comfort her during this time. And then, Lord, we also pray for the ministries that are going on around the world and also in this very city and in various locations. We pray for our dear sister, uh, Liz. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would allow her to continue to assimilate in the place that you have her in the Middle East. And pray also, Lord, that you would give her opportunities to be able to share the gospel. We pray for our brother Daniel, uh, who is up in Tennessee right now at Grace Fellowship preaching this morning. We pray for our brother Logan, who is preaching at Haven Baptist this morning. Pray, Lord, that you would bless their ministry of the word, and that, Lord, in the midst of it, uh, that, Lord, you, they would see fruit and increase of it. We also pray, Lord, for ourselves to be nourished by the word this morning, just as we were nourished by the supper. Pray your Holy Spirit would work in us and help us to stand in awe of your beautiful doctrine of election. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, I'm going to date myself here. Uh, one of my favorite television shows growing up was The Andy Griffith Show, and I know that younger generations have not had as much access to Andy Griffith. In fact, you have an endless amount of choices of things to watch. Us old fogies only had three and a half channels. I say half because no one watched public TV past age four. And believe it or not, when we wanted to switch channels, we actually had the hardship of standing up to walk over to the television set to turn a dial that had 13 settings, even though there were only three channels available to us. And you will never know the hardships that we had to endure. <laughs> I digress. 
But the plot of Andy Griffith is pretty simple. Andy is the sheriff of a sleepy little town called Mayberry in rural North Carolina, and it seemed to have southern characters with which we all could identify. We all knew someone like a Barney, or like a Floyd, or a Goober, or a Thelma Lou, or an Otis, or an Aunt B. But by far, my favorite character was Ernest T. Bass, who was this rascal who would drop down out of the hills into the sophistication of Mayberry. He made Shane Atkins over here look like Prince William. Every time he appeared in the show, I never failed to laugh. Ernest T. had a problem, though. He was single, and he wanted a wife. However, he was a backwoods hick who lacked any manners to obtain one. So in one of the later episodes, Andy decides he's going to refine Ernest T. so that he can find a wife. It was a modern-day Pygmalion slash My Fair Lady story. They clean him up, and they take Ernest T. to a dinner party where he presents himself as polite and respectable. And everyone is astounded at his changed behavior. And surprisingly, the daughter of the hostess shows an interest in the new dapper Ernest T. And his response in this moment is hilarious. He reverts back to his wild behavior. He grabs her, throws her over his shoulder, and heads back up into the woods. Now, just to be sure, the woman is laughing and enjoying playing games with Ernest T. so the audience knows that she actually likes him. I would hate to paint Ernest T. in a bad light because our culture probably would cancel him right now based on that. But I bring this out because chapter 28 of Genesis has a similar plot line of finding a wife, but it also has an additional purpose here. The journey to find a wife will transform Jacob. Unlike Ernest T., it will do so permanently. Last week, we saw the plotting within this dysfunctional family that left Jacob with all the property and Yahweh's blessing and left his brother Esau with murderous threats towards Jacob. Their mother, Rebecca, knows Jacob needs to get away from Esau, so she compires to, to send him away by sending him off to her family in Haran to find a wife. Now, I hope to complete the entire chapter under three headings this morning. A public blessing, an open rebellion, and Jacob's dream. Have a public blessing, an open rebellion, and Jacob's dream. Please turn in your Bibles, if you will, back to Genesis chapter 28. Again, this is found on page 22 of your pew Bible. The scene is set up by what Rebecca says to her husband, Isaac, in the last verse of chapter 27. Then Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? This appears to be something that both parents can agree upon. Back in the last verse of chapter 26, we had already learned that these two wives of Esau made Isaac and Rebekah's lives very bitter. Both parents saw that change needed to happen with Jacob. And strangely, unlike Esau, who already had two wives, Jacob is not married yet. Once again, I think it shows the temperament of the twins. Esau wants what he wants now. And Jacob is willing to be patient and wait. In fact, we'll see that patience a little as a trait of his a little bit later when Jacob thinks he's found his wife. So in chapter 28, verse 1, Isaac calls his son Jacob to him, not only to commission him to find a wife, but also this time to make the blessing public. Last week, we saw how Isaac tried to do this privately with his favored son Esau, and it backfired on him. 
This time, Isaac pronounces the blessing publicly. You may ask, well, how do we know this wasn't just in Isaac's tent again? Well, verse 6 tells us the most important witness who saw it. Esau was present. Now, there are three elements in this commission. First, Isaac is not to take a Canaanite woman as his wife. He is to go to his mother's home in Padan Aram and get a wife from his mother's family. Now, we will discover that Laban and his family are no less pagan than the Canaanites, but they are descendants from the line of Terah, descended from Noah's son Shem, and not from the cursed Ham, who is the father of Canaan. Second here, he tells Jacob he must leave immediately. That is implied with the first two words of verse 2, arise, go. Isaac sends him to find a wife before the blessing could be spoiled. But Rebekah also has the motivation of safety for her favorite son. In chapter 27, verse 43, she told her son, arise, flee from Esau's wrath. And she would let him know when it was safe to return home. And third, Jacob is now officially given the blessing of Abraham in the sight of all. Verse 3, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful, multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. And with that charge, by himself, Jacob immediately heads off to Paddan Aram to his mother's former household. Now, I've often wondered why alone. After all, unlike his brother Esau, he's not known for living off the land. And unlike the servant who found his mother Rebekah for Isaac, he's not taking any precious gifts as a dowry. I can only speculate that Rebekah didn't know who to trust after Esau made his murderous threats. And she also knew that Laban would know that their family was wealthy. But Jacob needs to go on this journey alone in order to learn about Yahweh. That is its purpose. Esau just heard these words that pronounced, pronounced on his brother. So what does he do at this point? Does he repent? Does he beg for his parents' mercy here? Does he at least plead ignorance and say, I didn't know that my wives were, were so offensive. I, I will strive to keep them from making you bitter. Perhaps he might run off, you know, and separate from his parents, punish them by, by keeping them from the grandchildren at a cool distance as a way of showing his frustration with them. Nope, that's not what he does. Unlike Jacob, who obeys his father, Esau openly rebels against his father's wishes. He travels to his uncle Ishmael's house, whose mother was an Egyptian, uh, an Egyptian but was also married to a local Canaanite woman too. And Esau marries one of Ishmael's daughters. Now, don't miss the irony as Esau thumbs his nose at his dad. If Jacob is going to marry the daughter of Rebekah's brother, Laban, then I am going to marry the daughter of dad's older stepbrother, Ishmael. Thus, Esau openly increases the offense to his parents. And while this is the last we'll hear of Esau until chapter 33, according to Psalm 83.6, Esau's actions will reach far into the future when the Ishmaelites and the Edomites plot together against Israel. His rebellion and hostility will affect future generations. But this next part of the story is one of my favorites in Genesis. In verse 10, we're told that Jacob leaves Beersheba and he heads to Haran. Now, let me ask you, would you agree with me 
that up to this point in the story, Jacob has done nothing to deserve the Lord's blessing. He has not repented. He has not prayed. He's not even worshiped Yahweh. There is nothing in Jacob's life so far that would earn him the Lord's grace. Agreed? That is what's so beautiful about the grace of God. Jacob doesn't find Yahweh. Yahweh finds him. Jacob is sent off to find a wife, but Yahweh finds him first. Jacob travels to a certain spot that we learn from verse 19 was near the ancient city of Luz. It would appear that from the book of Joshua, around uh, chapter 8, once it was conquered by the Hebrews, from that point on, the community was assimilated in what will later become known as Bethel. But Jacob takes a stone to prop up his head, and he falls asleep. And he has a striking dream. What he sees is a ladder. Now, in Hebrew, a more literal translation is a stairway towards the earth. That's a a quote, stairway towards the earth. This is one of those places that once an English translation first happens, it's hard to get rid of as we assimilate them into the colloquialisms. Who wants to give up the phrase Jacob's Ladder? But if you look at the footnotes in your modern translations, you will see flight of steps. But it is a stairway that reaches from heaven to the earth. Even I knew better than to entitle this sermon, Stairway to Heaven. Okay? Jacob sees angels ascending and descending from it. And at the top, Jacob sees Yahweh. But before we move back into the text, don't miss the pictures that's presented to Jacob here. Unlike the staircase of Babel in Genesis eleven fourteen that was trying to reach the heavens from the earth, this staircase descends from heaven down to the earth. And the Lord's ministers, the angels, are going back and forth. And who is directing it all? Who is at the pinnacle giving out orders? Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth. We might say that Jacob sees God in action as he's directing his angels on the earth. And now Yahweh personally introduces himself to Jacob. He speaks, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and you are offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Note that word keep there. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Now it's one thing for his father Isaac to give this blessing, but now there is no doubt who is receiving it. Yahweh is affirming that Jacob is his chosen. This is the same blessing that Abraham received, passed on to Jacob. God promises Jacob his journey to Padan Aram will not be permanent. Jacob will be successful in that he will find a wife who will produce an offspring, and then he will return home. Jacob's first response to this revelation has to be one of the most underwhelming statements in history. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. You think, Jacob? Jacob believes he has encountered Yahweh, and he is expressing an initial faith here. Not a perfect faith, but a starting point. 
You see, most pagans believe that a god possessed a particular locale. Like you have Hopi, the Egyptian god of the Nile. Or you have Zeus, the god of Olympus. Or Nick Saban, the god of Tuscaloosa. The power of the God was connected to the land or the place. But Jacob is going to learn something different about his God. Look at verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Yahweh is Lord over all, but more important than just being a God over land, he is God over his people. Yahweh doesn't just possess the land, he also keeps the people of his choosing. And we can see the signs of Jacob's initial faith response. His first physical response is fear. When Jacob sees Yahweh in all of his glory, he is fearful. And every sinner who comes to genuine faith should realize this. We deserve condemnation from this holy God. Our sin deserves to be punished in his presence. We don't deserve grace. He chooses to give it to us. And if you were presented some sort of mushy, jolly, Santa Claus kind of God where you have no fear of what your sin deserved, I am concerned that you were presented with the wrong God. There should be an element of fear as you receive grace from this holy and just God. We should sense that we deserve his wrath even as we receive his mercy. Again, Jacob is enamored with the place. The Lord will help him to see later that he is more than just located in a single location. We next see Jacob worship. Upon waking, Jacob takes the stone under his head and he uses it to erect a pillar a memorial stone. He consecrates the stone by pouring oil over it. Now, from this point forward, stones are going to play a part in the story. I've listed the references on your outline where they're found. But just know that the stones themselves aren't meant to be worshipped. Rather, they are memorial stones commemorating what Yahweh has done in a particular place. It will mark that he is God over all as the patriarchs move about the land. Jacob calls this place Bethel, which means house of God. And next, Jacob makes his profession of faith. And let me just say, it is a lousy one, but it is a profession nonetheless. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then Yahweh shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a, for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give to me, I will give a full tenth to you. It is an arrogant statement of belief. Again, there are elements of faith here, but he needs to grow in them. It's not clear if he'd been paying full attention to his grandfather Abraham's stories. It doesn't look like Isaac instructed him very much as being his dad. Jacob basically declares if God does what he said he would do, then he will worship Yahweh as his God. Remember, it's not Jacob that makes Yahweh his God. Jacob didn't choose him. Rather, it is Yahweh who tells Jacob, I will be your God. Even in Jacob's ignorance, Yahweh is working so that it is all of grace. It comes immediately from him. Very briefly, keep your finger here and turn forward to Genesis chapter 32. I'm going to point you to verse 9 there. 
The context is Jacob returning home, and he is fearful of what his brother may do to him. So he prays to Yahweh, and look at how different this prayer is now after his relationship to the Lord has grown. Verse 9, and Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. Look at this. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for a multitude. By this point, Jacob is a humbled man. Jacob bases his prayer on what Yahweh promised him. His faith is in the Lord, not in his own strength and power and not what he can humanly bring to the table. Now turn back with me again to Genesis chapter 28. Let's see what Jacob offers God in return. Verse 20, Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way and that I go and and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Basically, Jacob says, if you do all that stuff for me, get me a wife, provide for my needs, and get me back home, then I'll come back to Bethlehem, and I'll worship you. And I will give you a tenth of what you give me. A full tenth. He's not going to hold back. He's going to give the full 10% of what God has given him. Oh, Jacob has a lot to learn. It's not even clear who or how he would give it unless it was just 10% of slaughtered livestock. God, give me all this, and I'll give you 10% of it back. It's like a Discover Card commercial. Use your credit card with 24% interest, and we'll give you 2% back. So let me stop here, and let me give you the beautiful application of this text. You may say, why beautiful? Well, I hope I can do justice with what I'm about to say. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit will communicate it as I speak about the doctrine of election. Some would look at this text and say, God chose Jacob. That's not fair that Jacob had no choice in the matter, which seems a little absurd to me. Or that others don't get a chance to choose God. I understand the sentiment. I I used to stand on that side of the fence, which is only going to illustrate this point even more. As we have seen, Jacob has done nothing to deserve Yahweh's grace. In fact, he did things that appear as though he had no regards for God's sovereignty. And yet the Lord chose him anyway. Jacob did not choose God. When he was departing from Padan Aram, he wasn't praying, Lord, direct my steps. He was only motivated by self-interest. And who found who? The Lord found Jacob. This doesn't mean that God doesn't use means to draw you to himself, but we must acknowledge that it is all God's doing. He gets all the credit for it. One of the parts of this story is that Jacob's so-called statement of faith reveals his immaturity in the matter. He knows this God has found him and he is in awe of him, but he will still not understand who Yahweh is. And this is the part that I like best. 
If finding the Lord depended upon Jacob's knowledge of him, then this man was not going to get very far. But God found and chose him. And because of this, as Jacob journeys to find a wife, the Lord will transform him through this man's trials. There's another similar episode in Scripture, very similar to this. Turn back in your Bibles to John chapter 1. Again, this is found on page 887 of your pew Bible. The context is Jesus calling his disciples. Jesus first finds Philip, and next he will find the man Nathaniel. Nathaniel's somewhat of a skeptic. He's one of those people that sees things clearly in black and white. He will only adhere to what is true. And let's look at this story. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And here's the skepticism. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. And here is Nathanael's profession of faith. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Much better than Jacob's I agree. And look at this promise to Nathanael, verse 50. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now let me ask you, who found who first? Jesus found Nathanael. Who had knowledge of the other first? Jesus did. Nathanael is astonished and he asked, how do you know me? And now in the final verse, who is at the pinnacle of Jacob's staircase? Who are the angels being directed by? The Son of Man, Jesus who was very God himself. Now hear me out. I, I want to use my own story to illustrate this. I was raised in a Christian home. I could speak Christianese with the best of them. I had some knowledge of who Jesus was, and I had even had some Bible verses that I memorized, and I'm still grateful to this day that I was taught to memorize them. But with all of that knowledge, I did not know Jesus. I knew about Jesus, but I did not know him personally. In fact, some of my doctrine at this time was really wonky. And then there was a moment when I was in college when God met me. He found me. I was completely aware of my sin. I knew I needed to be saved from God's wrath. I was tired of trying to fix myself all the time. I knew I needed to be saved from God's wrath. And I prayed the most theological prayer that I knew how to pray at that moment. In tears, I cried, Lord, help. Lord, help. He was the only resource that I could turn to, and he found me. And I began to understand the meaning of the cross and what it signified in my life. Here's the thing. Even though the Lord found me, I still had much to learn about him and his word. My simple statement of faith was, Lord, help. 
And even after I was saved, I still messed up. I still held some crazy beliefs based on what I knew before. Like, even when I first entered ministry, I thought the way that you get people to saved was just to get them to recite the sinner's prayer. I'd seen everybody else do that. So I thought this was the way that you're supposed to get people saved. If I could get those people just to repeat this prayer after me, then they were saved. Man, was I wrong about that. As I saw people who said such a prayer, and they never changed. They may have had an emotional moment, but there was no transformation in their lives as that that played out for them. But again, I want to speak from my own perspective. God found me, and he continued to keep me just as he promised Jacob. And he was growing me, and he was transforming me, and he still is. And all of this reveals that if it was up to me for my salvation, there was no way that I could save myself. I am too ignorant of who God is. I'm even ignorant of who I am most days. I'd keep blowing it day by day. Let me put it this way. Imagine if you were an immigrant coming into the United States, and the first person you met claimed to be the president of the United States. Now, you don't know what a president is. Your previous country only had royalty. And this president tells you, I choose you to be a citizen. And he hands you a U.S. passport. And he says, I'm going to teach you what it means to be a citizen of the U.S. And you think, right, I'm not hanging out with this old Yahoo who can't even pronounce the word Psalms. Right? And you decide you're going to walk away. But the actual president of the United States keeps tracking you down, lovingly encouraging you and reminding you that you are already a citizen. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to avoid immigration. You have been made a citizen. And over time, you begin to understand you have the full privileges of citizenship. You can vote and you can even pay taxes. Isn't that wonderful? And also, it slowly dawns on you, I am friends with the president of the United States. I'm friends with one of the most powerful men in the world. I can stroll into the White House, into the Oval Office anytime I want because I am his friend. That is what happened to Jacob. And that is what happened to me. God chose us. I did not choose him. And he is transforming me into his likeness, not by my power, but by his And because he is the one doing the work, I can never fall from his grace, even from my mistakes, as he is teaching me about himself. So the question I usually get at this point is, Blair, how do I know if God has found me? Must I have a dream of a staircase to heaven? There's a part of me that just wants to answer, oh, you will know. (laughs) But I want to be more concrete than that. If the Lord has found you, then he is drawing you into a relationship to know him. You first become aware of your sin and your rebellion of him, and then you desire mercy and relief from your sin. You're tired of trying to live perfectly, and then you come to an end of yourself and you turn to Jesus. You discover that what he did on the cross is sufficient to allow you to have access to the God of the universe and feel his pleasure towards you. And you begin to live like it. 
There will be moments where you might revert back to trying to earn God's grace or moments that you fail and you sin once more, but that will only strengthen your dependence upon what Jesus did for you at the cross. You'll keep coming back to him, and you'll grow in your faith, and you'll delight to read and to hear the scriptures. You'll want to be baptized. You'll, you'll want to be with the Lord's people. You will begin shedding things that are no longer important to you because you love Jesus more. And unlike that Casanova, Ernest T. Bass, you will not revert back to your sin nature. The change in you will be permanent. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that when we think about this beautiful doctrine of election and we see it in the life of Jacob, how you chose him, how you met him, that Lord, it would just completely crash us and humble us that, Lord, there's no pride or arrogance could possibly be demonstrated in our lives. That we would look at the cross of Christ and we would see that it took the precious blood of your one and only Son to redeem us from our sin, to pay the penalty for our sin, and then also to see that it is only the righteousness of Jesus applied to us that allows us to enter into your presence. Lord, every time let us continue to look at the cross because it is the only means by which we can have a relationship with you. It's the only means by which we can be reconciled to you. And Lord, when we see that, help us to realize there is nothing we can do. There's nothing of ourselves that is intrinsically good. It is all because of what you have done. And allow us to glory in you all the more. Allow us to praise you all the more. Allow us to, to just lift up our voices in song and declare you are God, the God of salvation, the merciful, graceful God, slow to anger and abundant in mercy. Oh, Lord, we come to you this day allowing, allowing ourselves just to get a glimpse of what you have done for us so that we might be with you. So, Lord, allow us to worship you in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.